very hard and very lonesome, you know, because you got you get used to being with a lot of people and traveling and stuff, and then all of a sudden it's boom gone. It was it was a uh, it was a uh, very very hard to get ready get used to again. This is something that you've been doing since a very young age. Very very my early twenties. How many careers are there in the world that you know that people have effectively been doing the same thing since they were in their thirteens or early twenties? It's pretty rare. It is very rare, but uh, to be able to have a career that you can have for so long is great. When was it clear that this was something that you could really? you could really do to support yourself? Well, I guess in the uh, late 50s, uh, my brothers and I decided to become a gospel group. And uh, at which point we didn't make anything but hamburger money. But at that time, it was, you know, we thought it was really good. We, we would definitely pack up and leave home for $25 during that diamond area. But it, you know, it was something to do. And uh, we wanted to be singers. And if anybody called, we answered. You say just hamburger money, but when you're first starting out, even hamburger money is a big deal and, and, and a validation that you're doing the right thing. Indeed. It, like I remember our first professional gig at the Ash Grove, and we did a week, two shows a night, and like, which is two one hours per night and uh, at the end of the week we got a $125 check and our friends thought it was boy you guys are rich you know like $125 and all you did was sing yeah (laughs) were your parents supportive of your career early on Very, very much very much they did anything and all they could you know most people would have thought they just wanted us to leave home, but <laughs> no, they enjoyed they enjoyed supporting and the idea that our sons all four at the same time and with this you know with each other can't beat that. That's uh, that's one in a million for just about anybody. The idea of actually doing this as a as a career and actually surviving on it is is pretty far fetched. But particularly given the background that you come from, it must have seemed impossible well i guess you know the old saying is if you got a hunch better bunch we knew we could sing that was no doubt that we knew we could sing so the idea was now to find somewhere to sing and uh, that became easy because churches always always wanted somebody to come sing it seemed and you know, they would take up an offering, and sometimes you'd get $5, and sometimes you'd get 10 But way back then, that was a lot of money. wasn't a lot of money, but it was a lot of money. Was it through the church? Was that where you initially made your connection with music? It was the beginning of our career. We intended to be gospel singers and to only sing gospel, but we ran into some uncomfortable situations with that. And um, so that sent us to the coffee house as opposed to church. So our intentions now were was to bring the church to the coffee house of the singing, the gospel singing. 
and which point it didn't turn out so good. So we worked our way around that. But it just seemed like there was always one stumbling block after the other for whatever reason. What were those uncomfortable situations with the church? The fact that we were four brothers and we weren't the same size. So we had a real hard time finding uniforms, which the church required to uh, for the group to be uniformed. You had to wear the same socks, same shoes, the same pants, the same shirts, tie, all that. But we were not the same age, so we were bigger, one bigger than the other. And we, could, we couldn't find uniforms that fit all four of us at the same time. So the, the Gospel Singers Lounge decided if we couldn't find a uniform that fitted, fit all of us, then we couldn't sing in the church, or at least in their circuit of where Gospel Singers had chose to be. So, which again is why we went to the coffee houses, because it didn't matter what you wore. Although we did still kind of stick with the uniform idea, but now we could have some different kind of clothes that sort of looked like we were wearing the same thing. But then here come the gospel people to the church to tell the gospel association that the Chambers brothers are singing devils, singing gospel in the church, along with devil's music. And the gospel music should not be allowed in clubs or coffee houses where alcohol beverages are served because it was a house of devils. But I, we thought, if the devils don't go to church, take the church to the devils. And that was working out real fine, real fine. But then the main leader of what we considered the devils decided we could not no longer sing gospel in the club at all. So, who knows what would happen today, but she won, and we were asked to no longer sing gospel music in the coffee houses. So, we welcomed the idea of uh, introducing our, our thoughts and music to Jimmy Reed. All of all. I was shocked to read this little piece of information about how you first crossed paths with Jimmy Reed. I mean, to talk about, I don't know, kismet or fate or, or divine intervention, but it's a pretty amazing bit of history, yeah. how you originally got on his radar. Right. Well, all of it was fantastic. Everything about meeting Jimmy Reed and, and his music today 
then and today was just phenomenal. And I'm in the process of doing a tribute selection of songs for Jimmy Reed, uh, you know, to show the world that I didn't forget that the greatest blues singer in the world still lived in my heart. You were mowing lawns when you first met him, is that right? Yes, I was mowing lawns, and I heard this guitar coming through the window, and I went to peep through the window to see who was in there playing the guitar, and boom, right up in his face I was. And he says to me, hi, how you doing? You, you like music? I said, yes. He goes, well, I'm Jimmy Reed, and I'm down here from Oakland to play the uh, Orpheum Theater. They're having come some kind of big blues concert down there, and they invited me down to play, so yeah. And uh, that's how I met Jimmy Reed. When he said, I'm Jimmy Reed, did you say, I know? No, I didn't know, because hardly anybody knew at that time. It was before, way before he started, uh, he had released records. They hadn't, they hadn't been well received at that time. And uh, BJ Records, which the label he was on, was doing all they could. But then you have to realize that VJ Records was the first independent record label in the uh, state of America, and it was black-owned. So it wasn't an easy task. But VJ Records was the house, the home of some of our today's greatest names, like Jerry Butler, the Beatles, just, you know, people that incredible that on the label. And it still has a great, great memory to memories of, of who was on that label are just phenomenal. She was visiting down from, from Oakland. Yeah. And you were in Los Angeles at the time, but right. he, he was, was also from Mississippi originally. I'm originally, yeah, from Mississippi, the greatest place in the world to be from. Is that right? I think so. Black people should have never been stuck in Mississippi with the white people because they did not get along. But we were slaves, so that was purposely planned and well used. That must have been a some kinship that you had with him, um, you know, both of you being out there in California, but being from Mississippi. Is that, did you bond over that, that sort of shared background? No. What I said was, Hi. When he said to me, hi, uh, I'm Jimmy Reed. I said, hi, I'm I'm Lester. And he said, you like music? Yes. That was almost the end of our meeting and conversation. I never saw him again in my life. I never saw him again. And then one day my brother Willie came and said, oh, man, you know that guy you like, Jimmy Reed, that you met? I said, yeah. He goes, well, he has a record out. And I got a hold to the record, and it was like, you can run, but you sure can't hide. 
you got me running, you got me hiding. And we learned everything we could from Jimmy Reed, and so did so did everybody else, you know, because if you really go back and do your, your history on Jimmy Reed, he's the man, he's the man that really introduced rhythm and blues to America. He's, he's the greatest source of that music. People, there's not anybody today that play music that don't play some Jimmy Reed in everything they do. <clears throat> and people don't know that. People didn't know that. And Jimmy Reed has never gotten <clears throat> credit for that. I mean, like, my God, he went to Europe once. And if you look at the old videos of the, B, the, the Rolling Stones, Man for Man, and all these people from England, they sound just like Jimmy Reed did when he went there. You know, you see and you hear all the, from the time, like Muddy Waters or Muddy like Helen Waters. Wolf went out there. But yeah. Jimmy Reed doesn't get that kind of love anymore. Well, you know, the first, the front runner is always left behind. Well, like the Chambers Brothers, for example. Almost every group in the world sound somewhat like the Chambers Brothers everything they do but we don't get credit for it you know we brought along with james james brown we brought gospel rock to the world to the music years but we don't get credit for it we just you know we don't get credit for much and punk Funk and psychedelic music. You, you were crossing streams there that I think, I, I, I assume, uh, you know, I was obviously not around at the time, but I assume that a lot of people were hesitant or afraid to cross. Yeah, they were. I mean, uh, when we first, I remember the first time we wanted to use the word funky in a song, we had to change that. Even the first time we wanted to say, oh, my God, in a song. We had to change that. We couldn't use that word, you know? But uh, like a lot of groups today, like Sly Stone, example, just use that one great name, and he did such a great job. But if you listen to Sly, you hear a lot of Chambers Brothers. If you listen to a lot of groups, you hear a lot of different groups. In that group, which I always thought was a good thing because it meant they were listening and paying attention, you know. And but the idea, you know, like for example, I wrote a song called Girl, We Love You. Girls, we love you. And it's on Vault Records. And if you listen to the intro, the intro to Girls We Love You. And later on, here comes Marvin Gaye with Can I Get a Witness? And then I, you listen to the both of them. Listen to Girls We Love You first. And then listen to Can I Get a Witness? They're identical. Okay? But Motown Records never said thanks to Lester. And Motown Records never offered me any finders fee 
but the rhythm that Marvin Gaye used, that was mine. They, but he had a number one record with it, which set number, it was, I believe, his first number one, either that I heard it through the grapevine. It was, I guess that's what was supposed to happen. People were supposed to hear you and say, well, that's a great song. I'm going to do one just like it. <laughs> it's a tough one, right? Because obviously yeah. Marvin Gaye is one of the greats. And there's there's a certain bit of validation in the fact that he copped that from you. Yeah, totally. I, I mean, lick for lick. Lick for lick. But then he did change. And uh, somebody started writing good songs for him. I'd say he had a pretty solid career after that. Oh, he had a great career, bless his heart. At the time when the group was really first coming up and you had you had signed to a label, you know, you alluded to this pushback that you were getting with regards to some of the words that you're using. What category were was the label attempting to put you in? How are they trying to sell you? That has never been determined, okay? Because every year we come up to the uh, the awards. And they say, we still don't have a category for the Chambers Brothers. They were all over the place. They never stuck to any one groove. So we have nothing to label them with other than they were a great group. Everybody else loved them, and uh, but we can't put them in the... Uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame because of this. Yeah, everybody I've talked to who you know, were on labels, particularly in that time, the labels were trying to to categorize them, right? They were trying to sell them as a gospel act or or a rock act or a funk act or a blues act. Right. What, what kind of pushback were you getting from the labels at the time? They claimed we never did any two songs that sound alike, which is how they, I suppose, I guess, that's how they would categorize a group, is if they sound like the same group. I thought we sound like the same group all the time. It, you know, there was no problem in the audiences knowing we certainly did have some bigger audiences than a lot of the groups that they did categorize. You know, I mean, we were we were a great, big, huge group. I, I, I never, I'm still amazed at how they just shut us down. But then they didn't have a hard time with doing that because they, they said the time was for whites only. They said that we didn't do anything that encouraged our own race of people to come listen to us. And I wrote the first song about Let's Get Funky. When I first wrote Let's Get Funky, Columbia Records says, no way. We can't release that song over off of our label because you're talking about Let's Get Funky. You're telling the world. Let's get funky. And then they wouldn't play. It went to number 10. It got up to number 10 before they knew it. And it would have been number one. And they pulled it off the air because they didn't want the first record the Chambers Brothers had as a number one record to be Let's Get Funky. It's really hard for me to to wrap my brain around this, you know, all, all these years later, that it sounds like the, the biggest problem that the record labels had with the Chambers Brothers is that they were too inclusive, is that they were, is that they were appealing to too many people. We were appealing to too many people and we were of color. 
which was really, really bad. They wanted white bands to do time. When Time Has Come Today first came out, the album cover was four white dudes on the album cover, and they had been named the Chambers Brothers. But they weren't the Chambers Brothers. We fought religiously to get that changed and did. So we were now a problem for the label. We caused problems. Well, as you can see, we never were promoted. We never were promoted. I think they spent less money, but then they didn't have to because we had a, we had a reputation of just going on stage and kicking it out, you know, and tearing it up. And when we left the stage now, we couldn't get anybody to play after us. Uh, we went to Europe. All the groups disappeared. None of them would book with us. So we brought with us an opening act, which was the cartoons, The Roadrunners. And we were invited to go back home where we belong. You don't belong in Europe. We don't want you in Europe. We went to Europe once, but then I never went back until I was a guest artist with John Lee Hooker. We had some rough times from just being who we were. We were not accepted as in this music world as a, as a group. So to say we were accepted as a misfit. We were not ever considered a rock and roll group. So they labeled us with psychedelic. After time has come today, they announced that the Chambers Brothers are, we have our own psychedelic group. And at one point, we had won that part of being the first psychedelic group in America. But somebody spent quite a lot of time searching for a record to take that from us, and they did. And they gave it to that record, Crimson and Clover, as opposed to Time Has Come Today. Time was first. Time Has Come Today was the first psychedelic record. It says my soul's been psychedelicized there, right in the middle of the song. Right in the middle of the song. But yeah, all the all the screaming, all of the changing, all of the idea that it was a psychedelic song hadn't they couldn't give that. That was too big for a black group to be the retainer of. So they took it from us and said that little part, crimson and clover, over and over, crimson and clover, and that became the first psychedelic recording. After we had had the uh, honors for two or three months. Where did that come from? Where did that, that psychedelicized line come from? We had uh, been friends to Owsley. And, of course, we had in, partaken in some of his blessings. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it was very good. Beautiful. God, I never had anything so great in my life. Thank you, Owsley. We were 
traveling coast to coast constantly, wherever they called, we went. And traveling as we did now that these great things had become a part of people's daily life, you would see kids all over the world walking, hitchhiking, and we decided that they had become psychedelicized. And our souls, is the words my brother Joe chose to use at that time for that particular part. That's how it happened. Having come from the gospel tradition and, and singing about God and, and now having this line in there, as you said, using the word soul specifically, is there is there a through line? Is there a connection there between singing about God and the psychedelic music that you were creating at the time? God, I, I guess there was because uh, we had to say, oh, my Lord, on the record. We intended to say, oh, my God. But... That was not allowed, so we changed it from Oh My God to Oh My Lord. I have to roam. I have no home. Was there similar pushback at the time? You know, And I know that the, these were themes particularly that a lot of soul singers were, were dealing with. You know, um, Sam, Sam Cooke comes to mind, or I know you do um, the Impression song. People get ready. I mean, in, in the same way that there was pushback to some of the other themes you were dealing with at the time. Was there pushback against singing about civil rights? Uh, big, big, big time. Big, big time. And uh, if you did civil rights songs or participated in civil rights events, you were eliminated from all other events that didn't pertain to civil rights. So it was a narrow road a narrow path. But so you, instead of doing the concerts, we got smart enough to do songs as opposed to being there. We didn't have to be there because our songs were, our music was. So that, yeah, that was a big pushback. Did you ever have the desire or the impulse at the time to conform a little bit more if it meant Getting in front of more people? No, we no we 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 had it. It didn't matter. Now you know, so we stayed out the box. Why? Why confirm to what they want us to do? And we're not going to get nothing for it, other than the fact that we're a crazy bunch of inwards. You might as well just make the best music that you could possibly make, because you're damned if you do. Make the best music you can, and you know, and uh, make people and let people know that. You feel that, you know, we had a, we did one of the biggest college tours in the world. Uh, we wound up at Kent State during that time of the riots and the whole type thing. And uh, which had been booked as a college tour and not to say particularly be a tour for for protesting and protesters, but it turned out to become a big, 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 big event, and protesters came as well as the audience. And at one point, it got to where the audience that didn't want the things to happen, we had to win them over. 
So the way to win them over was with music and great lyrics. So the protesters would come to protest, but at the end of the show, they would be as happy as the people that just came to the show because they got the same they got the same treatment. I know we'd like to think that as a society that we've gotten better or moved on from that, but was it People Get Ready that you were singing in 2013 when you were attacked on stage? Yes, People Get Ready. I could, I could, I could never imagine that. I, I saw that lady when she broke through the gate. I was you know, I'm looking that way because I never look at people in the, straight in their face. I might glance by around the audience, but most of the time I'm looking way out, all the way across the top of people's heads. I saw her when she first broke through the the gates, and nobody came after her. But then there was a moment when I had my eyes closed because I was praying along with singing for things to be better and change. And all of a sudden, I see these hands come up on the edge of the stage. And this lady was like a military buffed, flipped herself up on the stage. And the first words out of her mouth was, you started this effing shit. And she hit me, boom, with both hands right in the chest, but with military force and training. And all I could do was, I, you know, I, I was a martial art trained to the max. And, but I couldn't bring myself to defend myself because I didn't know whether she was coming up to give me a hug. I don't want to be in a position to have to hit anybody. And I've, so far, I've, I've lived a life after having all that martial art training. I've only had to hit one person. And I still have thoughts about that. The idea that the security had left post, there was no security there for me. I was having a rough day with the promoter and everybody. Fuse Network was there to do to do a, the beginning of a live concert series. I lost all of that because of that one incident. And when you lose things like that, it don't come back. Yeah, I'm still wondering what happened, you know. Is it hard to get back on stage after something like that happens? Well, you know, I've had worse than that. I've had people come up and tell me that the four of you brothers are going to be on stage singing Love, Peace, and Happiness, and you're all going to get hit right in the center of your head. We don't make money off love, peace, and happiness. We make money off war. Now, that's scary. That's scary. So every time I go on stage, I'm confronted with that thought. And now with my son on stage with me, I'm thinking, God, it would be me and him now, you know? And I do this every time I go on stage. I pray to God that this has passed and don't exist anymore. But that was the worst it ever got on stage, which 
on the thirteenth when I got assaulted. Your son Dylan is, or he was in the room. He might, he might still be. I know he set up the the call. Being through all you've been through, everything we've just spoken about right now, uh, we haven't even really gotten into the subject of all of the royalties, all of that that you're that you're still dealing with, and knowing how awful the music industry can be. Did you try to dissuade him early on from getting into music? Oh no! Oh heck no! I, I, God, no! That's that's my life. <laughs> that guy, he's my, he's my greatest. You must have let him know know that it's it's not an easy road to go down. He knew that. He could see that. He was with me since he was born. He was on stage with me when the first time when he was four years old at Lincoln Center, in New York, and he stole the show. So you, you couldn't have stopped him if he wanted to. No, I wouldn't have wanted to. I encouraged him, as my parents did, me and my brothers, be what you feel you want to be. And if it's right, you got all my support, 100%. And I am the happiest father in the world every time we grace the stage together. I am so it's fatherly blessed. I have to ask you before we go, how did you end up on a Miles Davis record? Miles Davis and I were good friends. We had a cooking fetish. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> he was a big cook? Great cook. And so was I, you know. So we were, but we were not, we always going and coming. And he would he loved we loved seafood. So we would always find these ways to cook shrimp, a, lo- a lobster and stuff like that. And little did I know that Miles Davis had really wanted to be a harmonica player. He wanted to play harmonica. But he never ever asked me to teach him anything I knew. But we would after we eat and enjoy the goodies, we would sit around and jam together, me with the harmonica and him with the trumpet. So the song Red China Blues, I wrote, but I never got credit for writing it. I never got paid for writing it. And I asked Miles Davis, why did you do me like this? After all the time we spent together enjoying each other's company, and I thought we were really good friends. So he said I was a fool. You're a fool. You hang out with them Chambers brothers. They're not, they don't know anything about music. You do. I want you to be in my band. So... You know, that's what I, that's what you get. I said, wait a minute. I don't get no credit. No, you don't get no credit. Who, who's, I said, who's Wally? He said, Wally is somebody that can't go to the, to the, to the government and complain about not having a driver's license or, or social security card. And that's you. You're Wally. I said, so in other words, you chose Wally as a stupid guy that just don't know nothing. He goes, that's right, you're stupid because you didn't, you don't have a driver's license 
why they don't have a driver's license, why they don't have a place to live. Who's Wally? Wally's nobody. And that's what you are to me, nobody. And I left where I walked away. I never seen him again. You can't have a relationship with somebody after. I don't even listen, I don't even listen to his music anymore. I can't. And God bless you, Miles. May you rest in peace forever. In the grand scheme of uh, a lot of the stories you have, that particular story isn't too dissimilar. And, you know, I assumed that I assumed it was going to be a good story, you know, playing on uh, on this album with one of the greatest musicians of all time that didn't end up well. No, I'm Wally. Wally wrote a song that Miles loved enough to steal. And the last time I, uh, when I finally found out who handled his business and stuff, and I'm trying to get paid, uh, his, I think it was his brother, says, yo, man, you done waited too long, do you? You know, it's like uh, you've waited too long. There's nothing you can do now. And he hung up the phone. So after dealing with something like that and after dealing with all, all that you went through, after effectively being homeless and living in a, uh, a hallway for a while, what's kept you going? The love. The love of God. The love for God. The love of music. The love for music. And the people that love music back. What's kept me going is the spirit, the faith. And they are good in some people, and they are bad in some people. And I choose to think all the people are good all the time. And I don't see the bad. I don't feel the bad. My health is bad enough that I don't need to blame people for anything. You're one of the last living hippies. I'm the oldest hippie from Mississippi, man. I've been a hippie ever since I left Mississippi. I became a hippie when we crossed the border from Texas into Mexico. And I saw all the beautiful artwork on the building, on the streets. And I knew I was in the right place or on my way to the right place. Lester, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. Me and Mr. Mr. Jones. Yeah. <laughs>